Hey, welcome back to Black on the Air. Larry Wilmore, Black on the Air. That is me, Larry Wilmore. And I'm Black on the Air. <laughs> I said three times already. Part of the great ringer network of podcasts. So we're really having a lot of fun doing this podcast. Once again, I want to thank everybody for all your comments and your support out there. Um, really enjoying it all. We have a really fun one today. I'm talking with Malcolm Gladwell about his podcast, uh, Revisionist History. If you haven't had a chance to listen to it, it's, it's really great, especially if you're a Gladwell fan. And uh, we, talk, we talk about the podcast, and I kind of uh, get on him for a couple of things. I, I think you'll enjoy that. It was really, really a lot of fun. It's one of my favorite type of conversations where we cover a lot of topics. It's been a very interesting week. I got a lot of comments. I don't know if blowback is the right word, but uh, I was going off on burgers last week. <laughs> I, I, even, I can't even remember now why. Uh, it's so funny. But I was talking about veggie burgers, and some people got upset, and, and they were defending veggie burgers and everything. And let me just clarify my position on that. I have, I have nothing against the veggie burger itself. As a food item, if that's what you want to eat, fine. I'm just against, I think veggie burgers are disingenuous is my only point. You know, I just think it's trick food. It's food that's trying to trick me. So that's the point I was trying to make because it's not really a burger. It's tricking me into thinking it's a burger. Or if someone's eating it, I'm tricked into thinking that they're eating a burger. And I just think that's disingenuous. I think if you're going to be a burger, you should just be a burger. It's just my opinion. Also, there is, it is problematic. If your whole point is that you are against, you know, the, the way that animals are slaughtered for me, which I completely understand. It makes a lot of sense. Believe me, I have a lot of compassion for that. I don't know if you want to be seen eating the thing that you're horribly against because no one else is going to know that it's a veggie burger unless, you know, they go up and ask you. So that point I don't get at all. I would think burgers would just be avoided completely as a destination for food. But, um, yeah, so my point is really against trick food, food that tries to trick me. Like, I'm not on that whole everything can be milk train, you know. Like almond, I'm sorry, almond milk. You're not supposed to be milk. You're almonds. You're a nut. Stay in your lane. Stop it. Just stop it, almonds, okay? Maybe it's almond extract, if you will. <laughs> I mean, do you know how much energy it takes to figure out that you can get milk out of almonds? That takes imagination, you guys. That takes, that takes a lot of work to turn almonds into milk. So my point is like, stop it, almonds. That's you're not milk, okay? Yes, you're right. I like regular milk. <laughs> Larry Wilmore hates hates other types of milk. I just think they don't have to be called milk. It can be called almond juice, okay? Soy liquid. You know, my daughter's here today. Beautiful Lauren Wilmore. She, Lauren, you had soy milk growing up because you were lactose intolerant. I take the blame for that. I'm sorry. I should have told you you were drinking soy extract or something like that. So now you think that's milk, and I apologize for that. I'm really sorry. <laughs> your dad your dad put a lie inside of you, and I'm very sorry about that. <laughs> so anyhow, all I'm saying, almonds, is just be a nut. Just do your job in being a nut. And by the way, almonds are very problematic when it comes to the drought in California. Almonds, it takes a lot to water almonds. And this whole obsession with almonds having to do more than being a nut, like having to service us as milk as well as servicing us as nuts, it puts a lot of pressure on the whole irrigation system. So I'm asking almonds as a favor to stay in your lane for a while. Okay? Stop trying to trick me. It's not milk. Sorry, almonds. So anyhow... A lot of interesting things going on this going on this week. I like ranting about food. It's kind of fun, actually, because it feels like for some reason it feels like it matters and yet it doesn't matter. And yet somehow it does kind of matter, really. So it's kind of interesting to me. It's fun. Uh, here's an issue that some people felt mattered. This is in the world of sports. Some of you sports fans out there, especially football fans, are familiar with the Colin Kaepernick situation last year. He had uh, what was a silent protest of um, the issue of unarmed blacks being killed by police officers. And he was doing his kind of a silent protest by uh, sitting during the national anthem and then later kneeling. He really didn't make a big deal out of it at first, but he was asked about it and he said what it was and it became a big thing. And he's pretty much, it seems like he's banned from football for taking that stance. So anyhow, it was very controversial last year. My point in it, I said this before my podcast, I felt that it wasn't an issue of the national anthem that people disagreed with this premise. 
of police brutality that they just didn't they just don't like him you know making a case about that while he's playing football because if he were kneeling for breast cancer and i don't think anybody would have a problem with it but anyway i've said that before i think it's a premise thing but that's neither here nor there i'm not here to defend his actions or not defend it but michael vick was speaking about this i think on jason whitlock's show <clears throat> jason whitlock who's a noted sports journalist doing more let's say, color commentary recently, <laughs> speaking a lot about racial issues. So Michael Vick, and Michael Vick, uh, for those of you uninitiated, was a superstar quarterback for the Atlanta Falcons. Nobody, we had not quite seen a player like Michael Vick. We've seen people close to him, but his athletic ability and his his electricity on that field, was it was so uh, intoxicating. He really took the the NFL by storm, but he had a personal life that was problematic. He was doing dog fighting and this type of thing. And he eventually spent time in prison. In other words, he broke the law and, you know, he spent, I think, 18 months in prison or something like that. So anyhow, Michael Vick kind of turned around and kind of rehabilitated himself. And his advice to Colin Kaepernick was that Colin Kaepernick should cut his hair. And this critique like exploded on Twitter I mean, some people were so mad at Michael Vick. Like, Michael Vick's an Uncle Tom. How come he's saying all this stuff and things like that, which I don't understand that. But uh, I guess Michael Vick, he, he was trying to say that Colin Kaepernick should focus on his image or he has an image issue with this. And I didn't quite understand. My take on this is I don't quite understand this critique because I get it from Michael Vick's point of view. He was considered as somebody who was who was a felon. He was arrested for doing a horrible thing. The stuff that they did with that dogfighting and stuff was horrible. And he did need character rehabilitation. So part of redoing his image makes sense, whether it's cutting your hair, whether it's looking more presentable or showing people that you've changed in some way, that there's something in your life that's turned around. And that's what that external thing from Michael Vick, to me, that's what that was showing people from his point of view. But for Colin Kaepernick, what is the thing that he's turning around that he's supposed to be showing people that that he doesn't care anymore about that cause? You know, I don't get it. Like he has a big afro. And so having a short one, <laughs> like he can't be so blackety black <laughs> all of a sudden. Like now I'm a domesticated Negro now. It's OK, folks. You know, I'm not a wild bucking Negro no more. A Shetland Negro, if you will. Uh, nothing to be afraid of over here. So I just I don't understand what that image fixing does for what Colin Kaepernick was doing. So I don't understand that critique at all. So that's my take on that. Some people are wondering about that. I just don't understand it. I think Michael Vick really likes Colin Kaepernick and wants to see him succeed, but I don't know if that's the guy you really want to be taking advice from. Just not sure. And by the way, I do want to say it'll be interesting while we're on the subject of police brutality and killings and that sort of thing, and I've said my opinion on these things many times. I, I do support the police. My father's in law enforcement. I know it's problematic on both sides. I've always said that was an issue between black and blue, not black and white. It, it's a deeply embedded issue of black people's relationship with the power that the police have. And, and that's been problematic for many, many years. And, and the, the issues are very layered. It's not a simple thing. But an issue happened in Minneapolis where a woman, a white woman, was killed by an officer, she had called 911 or something, and they came on the scene. It was very sad. She was shot. Uh, she, I think, approached the car in her pajamas or something, and she was shot by the cop who was in the car in the passenger seat. And um, I don't have a comment on this yet, but I think you guys should watch this issue to see how it's reacted to because it's it's causing cognitive dissonance, I think, on both sides. It feels like there are some people on the right, some of the bomb throwers, who want the left to react in the Black Lives Matter movement and have like the same outrage for this as they see them having for those other incidents, wanting to put it in the same category. It's not in the same category, even though it is tragic and it's definitely problematic. But then there's another problematic thing that's happening where I see people who are talking about the fact that the cop is Somalian and they're focusing on the fact that he's an immigrant. And this issue is interesting to watch because this was done in the election where uh, in Minnesota, there's a Somali population that was kind of used in political ads to make people afraid of immigrants or something in Minnesota. Al Franken talks about it in his book. And uh, it's very interesting to see this play out as a political issue when the fact of the matter is 
this woman unnecessarily seems like she was unnecessarily shot and it's tragic and we should know what happened. We should get to the bottom of it and people should stop making it this political issue. If it happens on either side, by the way, doesn't matter. Speaking of politics, Mr. Uh, our president, um, the orange Julius Caesar, as I call him, the mango Mussolini, the crazy comb over. <laughs> oh, my God. I told you, as I said last week, it's exhausting keeping up with Trump. But now, here's the thing that I can't understand. Now, the whole thing with Obamacare, which, of course, was their derogatory term for the Affordable Care Act that the Republicans made up themselves, which now, you know, they've been saying this ridiculous thing about repeal and replace, which, by the way, does not make any sense at all. If you're a Republican worth any salt, you just want to repeal. You don't want to replace. <laughs> the courage of your convictions, if you're a true Republican, a true conservative, you don't want anything resembling Obamacare, and you never did. So why you want to replace it doesn't make sense to me. You know, repeal only makes sense if if you really believe what you're saying. But this whole repeal and replace is interesting to me because for all the uh, demonizing that the right did about Obamacare and you know, there are problems with the, the legislation, definitely. But a lot of the, the attacks were about a, really attacks on Obama, which is why it was called Obamacare and not attacks on the Affordable Care Act. And the fact that you want to repeal and replace doesn't make sense. If you want to keep parts of Obamacare that you feel work or that people like, that's fixing Obamacare. That's not repealing. You want to repeal it because it's a political issue, because you want to show the people who agree with you that we should hate everything Obama does to get rid of that horrible thing that he did. And let's have the stuff that we like from the Affordable Care Act, which is a different thing, right? No, it's the same thing. It's, I mean, they're acting like we're stupid, like we can't tell the difference. And this really upsets me. And the fact that you have a president who says, I'm not taking ownership of this. We're just going to let Obamacare fail. And then the Democrats will have to do something. No, you're the president. You have to do something. You're talking about people's lives here. You can't just act like it's okay to let people die or let things happen for a political reason. You know, that is a dereliction of duty as far as I'm concerned. This is one of the worst things that the president could even say, that he's going to, to cede doing something about an issue only for political reasons and to blatantly do that, especially when people's lives are at stake. If you really honestly believe there's a problem with this law, which I think both sides have agreed that there are problems with, I think um, there's just not honesty about what to actually do about it. Then you have to do something, Mr. President. Please don't make this a political issue. Stop acting like we're stupid and we don't know what's going on. Don't be almond milk. Stay in your lane. Don't try to trick us. Do your fucking job. And do what you're there to do. Run the country. Sorry, got a little mad there. <laughs> All right. Uh, anyhow. Great conversation with Malcolm Gladwell coming up. I think you're really going to enjoy it. <laughs> I say great, like, yeah, great conversation. It's a fun conversation coming up. But first, let's have a little word. All right. I am very excited now to have one of my special, uh, one of my most favorite uh, people in the whole wide world, Mr. Malcolm Gladwell. Malcolm, welcome to the show. Thanks, Larry. Um, Delighted to be on it. it. It's so I'm so happy to have you there. As you know, I'm a huge fan. Uh, all of your books, Blink, Tipping Point, Outliers, but your podcast that you have now, Revisionist History, is so much fun. It's so much fun to listen to um, because you cover so you. many different subjects on it, and you must be having a good time with it as well, right? I am. No, no, it's um, uh, it's more work than I had imagined, but <laughs> yes, uh, in a good yes. way. <laughs> yes. Turns out. Turns out to be a lot of work to do something from scratch that yes. you've never done before in a medium that's totally foreign to you. But um, uh, yeah, no, no, it's uh, and the that um, what you just mentioned. The point of the podcast is it's supposed to be as eclectic as possible. Yes, that's sort of what and I'm trying to get at. And your research is so thorough on it, which is fun to hear too. That type of research and the way you dive in. How did you come up with with the concept for for the podcast? Was it something you were mulling uh, over? No, I mean, my friend Jacob Weisberg runs Panoply, a podcast, you know, publisher. Mm -hmm. And he just said, you should do one. And I said, okay, not thinking anything about it. And then I thought what I needed was a concept, a title for the show 
so broad and so vague that it would be covered <laughs> to do anything. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> so, so I thought, you know, revisionist history, I mean, there's That's nothing funny. I can't talk about, right? Right. Anything can be shoehorned under that. So Absolutely. there's no particular, there's no particular. I just wanted a title that allowed me to roam. And um, since I have a very short attention span, sure. I figured... I have to kind of, I want to be doing as many different topics as possible. I like the honesty of that. It's kind of my show title, Black on the Air. It was really just a pun of Back on the Air. And it said, well, does it say what the show's about? Not really. I just wanted to do no. something funny. <laughs> it really doesn't mean anything. It's like, and the great thing about the word black is you can do that endlessly with the word black. <laughs> yes, exactly. I mean, it's like a pun, it's a punster's dream. Oh, that completely. Word. Yeah. So, yeah. No, yeah. No. You're very fortunate. Yeah, so I, I'm a huge fan of your podcast, uh, Revisionist History, from the beginning. And I, I, I was telling you a little earlier, I've listened to them several times. I have a couple of bones to pick with you on some of them. But for the most part, on. I love the fact that you're giving us a different view of things that we had an opinion about. And, uh, and group opinion is something that you cover as well, which I find fascinating. The very first one you did was called The Lady Vanishes, which brought mm-hmm. up a something I had never even known, the, um, the painting Roll Call. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. the artist, uh, what was the artist's name, Elizabeth? Yes. Uh, her name was, oh my God, it's been a year and a half now. Yeah, I know. Uh, but isn't that funny? It's, <laughs> yes, kind, it's kind of Elizabeth a, something. Yes. Elizabeth Thompson. That's right. <laughs> isn't that funny? It's, <laughs> it is kind of a metaphor for, for, for the whole, uh, for that episode, as it were. You know? No, it's, all, it's a metaphor for the fact that I have the world's worst memory. No, well, her name was Elizabeth Thompson, but she was also known as Lady Butler. Yes. Those are the two, yeah. And two it was one of the two. first, uh, it's, it's one of the more fascinating instances of, let's say, a breaking of the glass ceiling or the art ceiling or whatever you are. But you brought up a term in that that I found fascinating called moral licensing. And this whole mm-hmm. issue of uh, when being good frees us up to be bad. Um, yeah. Did you have that first and found the subject for it or did you have the subject and found that? Well, I read, uh, every now and again, I go to the library and I just kind of randomly go through academic articles. And I ran across this very obscure academic article, just really randomly, mm-hmm. about a, written by a British art historian about this painter, Elizabeth Thompson, mm-hmm. who had been this spectacular success in late 19th century England. Right. Um, and, and, when she, and she had kind of broken the glass ceiling in the art world. And everyone said, when she became the most popular artist in England women are going to be, are now going to take over the art world. This wow. is the sign that they've broken through and it didn't happen. Mm-hmm. And I just thought that was so, I read it. And I was like, so completely fascinated by it because yeah. immediately I thought of present day and thought not just of women, you know, in male dominated professions, I thought of minorities in white dominated professions. Sure. And the basic notion was in this author that she was a token that she was used by the art establishment at the time, which was under a lot of pressure for being run entirely by rich white men. Mm-hmm. She was used as cover. They, by, you know, her success allowed them all to point to her and say, look, we're not prejudiced against non-rich white guys. The most <laughs> famous artist in England is a woman. Uh-huh. And that allowed them to go back to business as usual. Um, and so I just find that idea... Instead of, in other words, so there was a difference between a pioneer and a token. A mm. pioneer is someone who braves the way for everyone else. Mm-hmm. A token is someone who is a one-shot, and then you go back to business as usual. And I it struck me that the world is full of way more tokens than it is pioneers. Well, I wondered if sometimes people fault the token or the pioneer, where it's, you're saying it's not their fault. It's the people who are bringing them, who are allowing that emergence to happen, right? Well, yes, people do outrageously fault the token because the token has to um, change their behavior. Mm -hmm. In order to be the first to break through, they can't be the kind of sterling example of their kind, Uh right? So the woman has got to be able to be one of the boys. Mm -hmm. You know, in the the racial world, you know, and people talk about Uncle Toms who got along, right? The notion of the Uncle Tom is a token, is the person who wants to be accepted by white society. But it's very unfair to point the finger at the Uncle Tom because the Uncle Tom does not have the luxury of numbers. Yeah. It's just them. Right. And when it's just you, you can't be, you know, 
representing your people or representing your gender in the same way that you can when there's 20 of you. We tend to be really unfair, I think, towards the token without understanding the peculiarity of their position. Do you think token is too harsh of an assessment on it? Um, you know, sometimes people are, they, they blaze a trail, but then I guess the fire from that blaze kind of burns out before anyone can follow. Or sometimes, I mean, it's, it's interesting. I mean, we could talk about this forever, but sure. there's a couple of different f- versions here. One version is by virtue of their extraordinary drive, intelligence, talent, what have you, mm-hmm. the outsider breaks through, right. can't be stopped. You know, Booker T. Washington, right? Or, yeah. you know, William uh, B. Dubois or all those kinds of people. Uh, if you look at, at black intellectuals of the late 19th century, early 20th century, mm-hmm. they tend to be, these are, these are guys with IQs of 100 and God knows what. 90, I mean, who knows? These, they're geniuses and they just could <laughs> sure. not be held down, right? Sure. But there's another kind of token, which is every now and again, the majority lets someone in uh-huh. very cynically because they realize that by letting that person in, they are taking the heat off themselves. Yeah. They're, and it, they're it almost seems like a, a reaction after the fact, because like w- when you use the example of Rocco, or you also use the example of Jackie Robinson, where the reverse kind of happened, or... Or the uh, yes, he's or, a, the, or the he's a, he's a pioneer. Yes, but uh, in the case of roll call, you could argue the world wasn't ready for that. But the talent was so unmistakable; it was almost someone who was outside of their time. Whereas Jackie Robinson, the world was finally ready for that, and the person kind of maybe did that at the right time, arguably. You yeah. Know? Although even with Jackie Robinson, the fact that I always stuns me is how long it took. So he's the first guy in. Yeah. But it's another, I've forgotten, 10 years before the Boston Red Sox finally yes. hire their first black player. I mean, it's not like it happens overnight, right? No, 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 it, no, no. It, Even then, even in the presence of Jackie Robinson and you're witnessing, wow, there's a talented guy and there's more where he came from. It still takes an incredibly long time for some people to come around. Yeah, it's real fascinating. I always wondered if the election of Trump was moral licensing against Obama. Like, I always felt like... No, no, I think, you're, I think that's absolutely the right question to I, ask. I would tell people, uh, I said, Trump did not run against Hillary. He ran against Obama, you know, where the country yeah. said, okay, okay, black people, we're done now. We had our little, we had our little run. Yes. Now we're going to go back. You know? We showed you that we're broad-minded and that we don't have a, you know, the slightest scintilla of prejudice in our bones. We elected your, you know... A uh, suave, smart, handsome, well-read, well-behaved <laughs> black man. Now we can now we can turn to what we really want, which is a jackass. <laughs> right. You had your Harry Belafonte in the White House. I hope you. I hope now you, you can enjoyed. have your vanilla ice. Yeah, I hope you enjoyed. <laughs> oh man, uh, another one of my favorites, which also dealt with with behavior and group behavior was the big man can't shoot. I like this a lot because, mm. you know, I'm a huge sports fan. I played basketball and uh, it was a story. I have Wilt Chamberlain, the story behind that a uh, hundred point game that he had that I think was in 1962. I think he was playing for the Warriors at the time. Never has never been repeated. It's an unbelievable feat. But what I didn't know about it that you uncovered was that he, Wilt, Wilt Chamberlain was a horrible free throw shooter. He was known for that. And he was that his whole career, except for this one night when he shot them underhand which I didn't know because I don't think there's any film or video of that game. I don't believe. Um, and you go into why he did it. And, and this is like the best way to actually shoot free throws, but it's fascinating that no one wanted to copy him. Yeah. Not even. And he, so here's a guy who has one flaw in his game. One. Yes. He's a lousy free throw shooter. Yes. He fixes that flaw. The year he shoots underhanded, he shoots like I've forgotten 75% or something from the yeah. line. Usually he's a, 50% free throw shooter. Right. But he, even, even after he had evidence that he could solve his one flaw by shooting free throws underhanded, he goes back to shooting them the normal way because he doesn't like the way it looks and he's scared of being called a sissy. Yes. Uh, and nobody, you know, like DeAndre Jordan or uh, who's, the, who's the center for uh, the, the Pistons, who's oh. even more pronounced. Andre Drummond? Yes. Yeah, okay. Andre Drummond. Mm-hmm. Here are two guys who, again... Drummond is particular, has one, basically one flaw in his game, which uh-huh. is he's such an egregious free throw shooter right. that he cannot, you cannot play him in the last yes. 10 minutes of a close game. 
if he could shoot free throws, you could argue he could probably get a max contract. Yeah. And does he show even the slightest interest in trying some other strategy since the strategy he's using now demonstrably does not work? Yeah. No, it doesn't make any sense to me. <laughs> he's leaving $20 million on the table because he doesn't want to shoot free throws. All he has to do is call Rick Barry. Right. I can, if Rick Barry is in the phone book, <laughs> call him up. Rick Barry will fly to Detroit and give him lessons. I promise you Rick Barry would do that. Yeah, the whole term hack-a-shack came out because that's what you did to Shaquille exactly. O'Neal in the, in the final couple of minutes. So. Yeah. Again, a guy with one flaw. Only one flaw in his game. But here's, and he doesn't want to fix it. But here's what's interesting, because you, you mentioned that Will Chamberlain didn't want to look like a sissy, which, you know, yeah, overly concerned with, because I guess he had to bed 20,000 women, apparently. And so <laughs> I guess that would have cut down on that number. But I guess um, women... Uh, basketball players didn't want to shoot it like that either for arguably the same reasons, right? Yeah, they're, it, it's so weird. That's so I, weird to me. There, there, there is some incredible streak of conservatism uh-huh. in sports that I've never entirely understood. Um, the reluctance of particularly elite players to innovate in the way that you would think. You know, think about how Long it's how long it took for people to exploit the three point shot. Right, I mean, three point shot's been around for decades. Yeah, it was in and the ABA first. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in the ABA first. Basically, it took until those Houston teams. You could even argue that you could push it even further. Mm-hmm. But you know, it it basically took until the last couple of years for people to realize mm-hmm. you should only shoot layups and three point shots. Yeah, Golden State. And you State basically is really can't shoot enough. Yeah. three point shots. Yeah. Well, it's funny. A lot of that comes from um, there is this notion and it's funny how race plays a part in so many things Uh, in the early part of the integration of basketball. um, There was a notion that black players hot dogged it. You know, (laughs) that was Mm -hmm. the term that they use. Like if you dribble between your legs or around your back and, you know, did these types of moves that are normal now was called hot dogging and it was very frowned upon. And uh, it was the ABA that embraced that form of basketball with players like Julius Irving, Dr. J, and Iceman, who they embraced that style. You know, we called it playground basketball was the other term, you know, but the pejorative term was hot dogging. And even the three-point shot was in that category of hot dogging, believe it or not, because it's an ostentatious thing. But one of the first white players to embrace hot dogging or that type of play was Pete Maravich who was a trailblazer in his own sense. And he really made it acceptable. He and Larry Bird, to some extent, made it acceptable for white people to say, okay, it's okay to play flashy. Like flashy is okay, you know, because when brothers did it, you know, it just, it was seen as something to be frowned upon, if you can believe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it takes a, (laughs) it's funny how these these things, there was a suspicion of the physicality of the game. In other words, the notion was that virtuous basketball was basketball that was earned. Right. That involved sweat and effort and multiple passes and people grinding it out. And if you were flashy, what that meant is that you were, somehow you were circumventing the the virtuous way to play. Yes. Um, And also that there was a smart way to play as opposed to you were just naturally talented, which was the other divide at the time, you know. Yeah. Well, of course, too many, they're so talented. Look at them play. <laughs> people who spent too many, too much time watching Princeton play you know, <laughs> right. college basketball. <laughs> yeah, the Princeton offense or whatever that was, right? So here's a question I have. How hard is it for history to be corrected? I mean, you, you've you said in your podcast that history is written by the winners, which many people have commented on. I remember in mm-hmm. Blaine Game, I think you talked about the Toyota incident, I think was in the 80s where the sudden acceleration thing. Yeah, late late nineties, yeah, or late nineties, right? Actually, no, no, no. I'm, it was a two thousand and nine. Oh, oh, that's yeah. right. It was more. Yeah. I was thinking of another yeah. thing, but th- I remember that got so much press, and it felt like everybody made up their mind about it. But then someone actually did research on it and proved it was wrong. But people were already done. <laughs> like the world mm-hmm. said, "Sorry, we've made up our mind about this. We don't care about evidence anymore." Is is does that is that accurate? Oh yeah, I don't think I don't think it. It's it's almost impossible to to change people's mind after the fact. Um, but I mean, I think, but, but that's also raising the bar too high. I mean, I don't think the point is to re- change everyone's mind after the fact. I think if you can just reach a handful of people, the kinds of people who are interested in, you know, thinking deeply and critically about history, that's good enough. Mm-hmm. You know, the, if you think it, what's really, and, and I think it has an impact, like 
If you think about a grand historical, I say grand, I mean a big deal historical episode like uh, Nazi Germany or slavery or Stalin's Russia or the process of revisionism has been ceaseless. Mm -hmm. I mean, every year someone comes out with a new perspective, a new way that, and the cumulative effect of all of that rethinking does over time deepen our, our understanding of what of what actually happened. So I do think, I mean, I think it happens very slowly and I think it takes many different voices, but I do think you can gradually shift mm-hmm. the kind of center of gravity of our understanding. I think that's a reasonable um, goal of this kind of, of uh, look back. Although sometimes you argue it, the history becomes a little bit fuzzy as well. Like certain context is forgotten about in many cases when ideas were formed and Sometimes that context is just left behind, mm-hmm. which is kind of yeah. No, no. I mean, this is why history is. This is why we have history departments, right? <laughs> right? Yes. Because because it's it's super complicated. And I think that's sort of the fun. It's also the fun of it. Yeah. Can it ever be accurate history? No, I don't think so. Not no. not wholly accurate because we know the the basic fundamental building block of history: people's perceptions and memories of those perceptions. We know to be hopelessly subjective. Mm-hmm. So. You know, once you've got, unless we're going to videotape every moment of every day, we're basically relying on perspectives and archival records and, you know, like, oh, you, even when you have documents, you know, you, mm-hmm. these days, everyone loves looking over people's emails to reconstruct right. history. But what percentage of what happens in the world gets memorialized in an email? Yeah. I mean, you know, we're never going to recover Donald Trump's Snapchats, are we? <laughs> so, so right. who knows? Maybe maybe he's communicating with Putin on Snapchat, and right. like we're you know we're out to lunch on that on that part of his. So yeah. you're always going to get some little piece of it, yeah. and that's why I think it's just so much fun, right? Um, to kind of go back and and root around, like because some- there's a million different interpretations. Like sometimes I love looking at shows like uh, Antiques Roadshow or you know even Pickers sometimes where. Because they'll they'll find objects that hold a certain type of history that's been forgotten, and there's a context for that history. Like there was, people always have shared ideas and shared experiences during certain periods, but many times it's like pop history that's being shared, you know, or or, or pop mm-hmm. culture, I should say. And pop culture is so transient; it can go so fast, and it, then it just feels like it's gone unless there's something to memorialize it in some way. Yeah. And, and even then, it's fuzzy about what objects. Meant. That's why archaeology is so interesting to me because we always ascribe what objects meant in a certain time. You know. Um, yeah. New a version of that that I've often thought about is um, that you know how when you were a kid, there were certain songs that you heard, mm-hmm. and I think it only works when you're a kid. When you're like in your teens, mm-hmm. there's a song that you heard in like July, and the first <laughs> time you heard it, yeah, it struck some chord in you, and it. It completely transported you to a different place, and yeah. there you'll never you can never describe or reconstruct that feeling for someone else. Yeah. So I cannot describe. I cannot. I cannot even begin to explain to a twenty-one-year-old today <laughs> what the song uh, "Tainted Love" meant to me in nineteen <laughs> sure. whatever it was right. eighty-five. I yeah. can't. No. They can hear the song, but the the song doesn't say. It doesn't say. You know, you need to be. Yeah. You need to be. You need to be at. I know. You know, dancing in at a party at Trinity College in right. University of Toronto in 1984, I think it was. <laughs> I know. To that song, with, to a, with a really cute girl, to yeah. know what it meant to me. And I can't, I, it's gone forever for everybody else. I, I remember yeah. hearing Reasons, Earth, Wind, and Fire, and that whole album was amazing. Uh, That's the Way of the World, I think it was on. But I remember having uh-huh. a, cr- a crush on a girl back then, and Reasons was such this song, and it, it just, oh, it was so emotional then, that song, I remember, it stuck with me for so long, but you, it's funny, because with, with music, I think music is a time capsule in some ways for people, like, I think some people get to a certain year with music, and after that, no, music never is the same again. It's interesting, but it doesn't mean the same in their life as yeah. it did at a certain point, you know, and everybody has that. Yeah. That year or number of years, three years or whatever it is. It's right around 21, 22 is where your musical interest peaks. It's kind of interesting. There are people who have studied this. Yeah, yeah. It's real fascinating, you know. Okay, so I have a couple of bones to pick with you on a a couple of your podcasts here. Okay, first one. Bring it on. Is the satire paradox. Ah, yes. Yes. 
It was very controversial. I think at the time, I remember a lot of people were tweeting about this and were talking about it. Um, yeah. I, I feel like I disagree with your premise on here on what is the purpose of satire. Um, mm-hmm. It feels like you're saying that the purpose of satire is to affect change or to maybe take a position on something. Mm-hmm. Is that accurate? Well, uh, you know, I'm going to make a confession. Okay. <laughs> and that is, that piece doesn't quite work. Because mm-hmm. I'm making two arguments simultaneously and they're, I don't reconcile them. Okay. Argument one is that satire cannot have, can never have the effect of speaking truth to power that it wants to, because mm-hmm. it's fundamentally ambiguous. And that people who you think would be shaken up by the satire will simply interpret in a different way. That's the Archie Bunker problem. That okay. Archie Bunker doesn't, he tries to satirize American rednecks. The problem is that red, American rednecks love Archie Bunker. Mm-hmm. They don't see him as satirizing them. They see him as celebrating them. Problem number two is, then I make a, a parallel argument, which is contradictory, which is I say, in order to work then, <laughs> satire has to be really, really mean. Mm-hmm. Um, they're, those are two different arguments. Yes. You know, and, I can't, I try to have it both ways and I didn't quite understand. I should have picked a side. Either you have to be mean in order to make it work or it can't work. <laughs> well, right? I guess where I disagree with you is, is where you say work, make it work. I think yeah. you're feeling that, like from my point of view, someone who writes satire and who's been around it, making it work is first of all, getting laughs. And satire is about revealing a truth, not taking a side, you know, and Ah. it's not about wanting to affect change. It's really shining a light like change comes. That's in somebody else's hand as far as change is concerned. You know, the the satire's job is to have the flashlight and to say, look at this. And I'm doing it in this funny way so we can see it in a different way. But there has been, I think, a, a desire for people to want it to do more. And it felt like mm-hmm. that's where your premise was starting from, was that desire for whatever side you're on, for satire to do the job of doing something as opposed to showing something, you know? I think that's fair. I think that's very fair. Uh, I think that show, remember, is conceived in the aftermath of the, yeah. actually was conceived during the election. Yes. Uh, you know, I was so caught up in... Yeah. A kind of frenzy of what can we do to expose Trump for who he is. <laughs> there you that go. I, I think I, I kind of bought into, but I think you're right. I mean, I think of the many critiques I heard of that show, yes. uh, yours is the, that's the one that makes the most sense to me. I think well, that I was overstating, you know, I was, it was, a, it was a little bit of a straw man there in sure. um, asking Saturday to do more than it reasonably can be expected to do. Yes. And I'll give you an example. Um, like when you brought up Tina Fey and, uh, and I agree with you that she's brilliant, but I disagreed with you that, that what she did was toothless because I felt like it's an unfair assessment of what her intention is. You know, like the fact that she's using Palin's own words to do that routine is actually what makes it brilliant. And then mm-hmm. who you decide what you want from that, but the act of what she's doing is what's brilliant, not the effect that it has, you know. But I will only say about that that I think you're right. However... My problem with that is that Sarah Palin is essentially a sourpuss. Yes, that is your Tina, opinion. That's my opinion. But no, right. I think it's it's safe to say there is a what is unpleasant ultimately. What what was both the cause of her success mm-hmm. and also the cause of her kind of fading from the public eye mm-hmm. was there is a kind of nasty strain of know nothingism and ignorance and anger in her. <laughs> Um, and people perceive that, right, on the way up and perceive that on the way down. Tina Fey, on the other hand, is someone who is nothing but winning. Mm -hmm. And so you have this problem. This is maybe maybe a separate problem from from the satire problem per se, but this problem when someone who is extraordinarily winning and charismatic so effectively portrays someone who is not. I disagree with that. I have a huge disagreement with that. I was at the Republican convention that year. Sarah Uh Palin was a rock star at that convention. They didn't even care about John McCain. I mean, she could have been at the top of that ticket. I mean, her charisma just soared through that whole arena. You know, whoever wrote her speech did a fantastic job of really uh, presenting that folksiness that that, uh, Faye made fun of 
in, with some great one-liners or whatever. You know, yeah. and it is politics. That's part of the politician's job. But the phenomenon of Sarah Palin, you can't, like, act like she wasn't charismatic and her charisma and her charm and all those things was was really what made her effective. But I agree with you. It wasn't her her thoughts on policy. You know, it was the way she took a stance. She was the first one to kind of, she was that first candidate with charm and humor to really throw that Tea Party take right into the face of the, of the establishment Democrats at that time. She really was the first one yeah. because McCain, he was that establishment Republican. You know, he was more genteel. He was, you know, McCain, he's, he's, kind, he's, he's more of a fair guy. He's not going to be, he's not a flamethrower the way Palin was. But she did it with charm and humor. Now, the other, so that part of what Faye was doing, like she's doing the complete phenomena of Sarah Palin in my mind. But using her words exposed what you're talking about, you know, and then that type of thing, which and that's why I say that's what the, the brilliant thing was. It was both of those things, you know. Yeah. I'll only say this, Larry. If someone said to you, mm-hmm. um, Saturday Night Live is going to make uh, is going to have a recurring character. Right. Over the course of the next season who just makes fun of you. But said, good luck with your uh, ratings. We're going to let you we're going <laughs> to let you choose who's going to play Larry Wilmore. Right. Right. Who are you going to choose? You're going to choose the most charming person you can find, the best looking, most charming, most winning person. And almost, I mean, if Dave Chappelle did a Larry Wilmore impersonation oh. or satirical oh, impersonation, good. I like that. We're going to love you more, not less, right? Yes, but I, I think you're just mad that people loved her more. I, I think that's irrelevant, to be honest with you. Um, but that's just you saying you wouldn't want Dave Chappelle to do the Larry Wilmer impersonation. Oh, it'd be fantastic. I would love that. But I'm saying whether or not people love Sarah Palin more is irrelevant to me. It's the it's if you're going to break down the purpose of satire, how people feel afterwards is not the point. You know? Yeah, no, no. I I will. I'll 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 give you that one. Yeah. I'm backing down. All right. Okay, but I got another one. I got another one. And uh, and I think you'll see my point on this one, too. Okay, so a good walk spoiled. Um, mm-hmm. you're talking about, uh, golf and country clubs and how they're misusing, uh, I'm going to be, I'm generalizing here, like public funds mm-hmm. and that sort of thing to get like, um, unfair, let's say tax, um, benefits and using land that you feel it was better used for something else. Right. Yeah. That's a version of it. Yeah. Sure. Sure. Right. Now I feel as an attack of country clubs, completely valid. But you go after golf itself. <laughs> and I'm like, wait, hold on a second, Malcolm. Why are you attacking the game? This is some player. This is what we call player hating on golf. Because there's no reason to go after the game of golf. If you're going after country clubs, I understand. But golf? You're going after the game? That doesn't even make well, sense no, no, to I'm me. I'm setting up the argument. It's yeah. important for the argument. The point is that Understanding golf as an addiction yeah. explains why rich white people in Los Angeles went to such extraordinary attempts to hoodwink the public into giving them a tax break. So it's it, it, it's necessary to understand the crime here, to understand the thing that drove them to the crime. They're not the you know the Ma Jong Society of Beverly Hills uh-huh. didn't get a constitutional amendment passed to protect <laughs> Ma Jong, did they? Why? Because uh-huh. mahjong's not an addiction. Right? No, but golf is an addiction. No, no, because mahjong's not played by rich white men in the nineteen teens. That's why. <laughs> no, no. I mean, what's the point? Let me ask. Okay, I'm going to say I'll make my argument a different way. Okay. Why, if I'm going to go after uh-huh. the country clubs of Los Angeles, yes. Why would I pass up a per- perfectly good opportunity to go after the game of golf? No. Too much fun. No. Too much fun. No. <laughs> Cause not. Cause Wait, I cannot believe you of all people. You of all people are calling me to task. Yes, for taking truth. on a sacred cow. Because satire I mean, is truth, like, my friend. It is truth. Can, can I, I remi- can I remind I'm, Larry I'm Wilmore it 100. who Larry Wilmore is? I'm keeping who, it a hundred. Larry Wilmore is somebody who respects sports <laughs> and what sports can do. You know, I cannot believe I'm getting a lecture on this from you. That's yes. all I'm saying. That's all yeah. I'm saying. I'm, you meaning who, yeah. meaning. <laughs> Meaning, you're you're you are you served as the inspiration for people like me. Oh, I'm remembering you're being that too kind. absolutely, you're absolutely brilliant. Um, the thing in Washington, uh, the well, correspondence. Correspondence. Center. Thank you. It's very kind of you. That that was one of the high water marks of my last decade. Oh, it was like wow. watching those guys squirm. Oh so man, it was did, now did you? 
if someone had come up to you afterwards and said, Larry, you didn't have to go that far. <laughs> it's true. You're... Everybody said that. <laughs> <laughs> and they were probably I mean, right. <laughs> no, and the, the correct answer is, fuck you. I'm well, not going to pass up that opportunity. Let They're all a bunch of fat cats. Let them squirm for 20 minutes. Well, the correct That's answer, the right answer for me was, you are correct. You would not do that. You are correct. I would do it. You are correct. Right. <laughs> the fact that you would not do it is, is, is exactly what I would do. But yes, I, I completely get your point, Malcolm. I'm giving you a hard time about this because I love sports. And I know how you're snotty about certain sports. And I know that about you already. You know? Yeah, I am. Uh, I totally am. Yeah. Yes, you have a reputation. Wait, you, you play golf, right? You of, must play golf. Of course I play golf, but I don't just play golf. I play lots of sports. But golf is a great game, you know, and the game Which, of golf, by the way, um, has it, it. It is a very democratic game. It's not just a country club game, you know. It's one of the few yeah. things that you can go out and just play with strangers who you've never met before and, and have an amazing time, you know. And it's one of Which those exclusive country club do you belong to, Larry? Come on. Oh, stop it with the country club. Those are two <laughs> different things, Malcolm. This is what I'm trying to tell you. I have played golf all over the world, but it's not just, it's not just, it's not a, a defense of, of the click of golf. This is the defense yeah. of, I feel, the not understanding of the actual game of golf, which are different, you know. Yeah. That, that's all I'm saying. I, you're, you're, you're hating you're on right. the game. I was, but I, <laughs> um, no, no. But it was done in the, I mean, Yes, Listen, I know, I know. My tongue you a hard was time. planted firmly in my cheek the entire <laughs> yeah. time I was Yes, doing. I figured that, I figured that, you know. But, uh, yeah, we have to take you out and play some golf sometime, you know. Uh, it is a great game for, for, for kids, by the way, too. One of the reasons, uh, what sets golf, not that I'm going <laughs> to, wanted to take the time to talk to you to defend golf, but one of the fun things about golf when you're teaching it to children is the, uh, is the self-responsibility of it, where they are completely responsible for everything that happens in it, you know. And, uh, yeah. and it's a good thing because, uh, like teaching kids that this is a game that it doesn't, it doesn't create character. It kind of reveals your character, you know, it kind of yeah. reveals who yeah. you are. So anyhow, there are a lot of good things about it, but we don't have to go about that. I want to get into your last couple of things that you cover in civil rights. Cause I think the, God, Malcolm, this is some of the most important stuff that you have out there. This, this really lives up to what I think the promises of your revisionist history idea is having us look at something in a way that we didn't think. And that's Brown v. Board of Education. Um, and what the effects that it had, and this, this alone I think we could talk about for maybe a couple of hours because it's fascinating, all the different layers. And can you just review just the beginning of this uh, for us, uh, just so you can set the uh, table for what this is? Yeah, it was a show about, it started with the, you know, the show about this famous, the famous Brown versus Board of Education case. Right. And I start with the Brown family. Yes. And simply describe, what did the Browns want? Right. And, Very good and question. What was, the, what was the Browns' critique of the world as they knew it in Topeka, Kansas in 1954? Yes. And their critique was, we're getting a great education at our segregated schools, mm -hmm. but we don't like a world that says we can't send our daughter down the street to an elementary school just because she happens to have black skin. Right. right. So they, what they were asking for was some control over their own destiny. Yes. That is not what the court gave them in this, this quote unquote, famous decision. Mm -hmm. Instead, the court made what I think was a series of outlandish claims okay. about how black people were permanently crippled by the education they were receiving at their own schools. Mm -hmm. And following on that, the case opened the door for white school districts to do something to, mm -hmm. to commit a historical atrocity which was to, I don't know whether I should give that away, but... Yes, I want people to listen to it and everything because a lot of the things you talk about are really interesting, but it's, once again, it's losing the context of how things occurred and some of that fading into history. And, well, one of the aspects of this case, too, people have to remember, it wasn't the Browns necessarily taking this case. It was the NAACP at the time, which kind mm -hmm. of forced the mm -hmm. hand of the Browns, not forced the hand, but encouraged them to do this as, as well as other families. And it was kind of a bundled uh, number of cases that was presented. I think it was Thurgood Marshall who, who argued this case as well. Yes, that's right. He was yeah. the lead lawyer for the NAACP yeah. at that it's, point. That's where he first got a claim from, from this. But uh, a lot of people forget this. The, the whole notion of segregation is a problematic notion because it's not just one thing. It's not just people are separate and this is bad. 
you know, many times in these situations, people rise to the occasion for certain reasons. My father, who's, who's from uh, Chicago, grew up in that segregated world. And, and he would tell me that sometimes because of segregation, black communities actually felt stronger back then. You know, you had mm-hmm. many different peoples in the communities like doctors and lawyers and and they were all part of the one community rather than the idea that people have of black communities now. They always think of them as poor and dilapidated and gangs and they have such a mm-hmm. negative view of it, you know. Mm-hmm. which is mm-hmm. ironic. You know, it's, it's one of those problematic times, right? Yeah, I don't, it is, you're right. It's a hugely complicated issue yes. and it's time to have a complicated discussion about it. I mean, yeah. it's uh, it, the, the thing that struck me most when I was reporting that was talking to all, there's, mm-hmm. a, there's a group of renegade black intellectuals mm-hmm. over the last 10 or 15 years who have just gone off on the Brown decision. Wow, really? Um, and have been really upset with it. And mm-hmm. their bottom line is, look, if you look at the history, it's not like the integration of American public schools has been this extraordinary success that we can point right. to and say, this is one thing we did right. I agree. We didn't. It, it, it got screwed up mm-hmm. deeply and badly along the way for a hundred different reasons. Mm-hmm. And they say, well, look, in hindsight, uh, we could have done this better. Mm-hmm. And we could have done this in a way that didn't make black students right. and black teachers the sacrificial lambs yes, put of this uh, social experiment. And I think that's absolutely right. I think mm-hmm. part of me wants to say that it happened. There was an appetite to sort of uh, a desire to get the whole thing over and done with. Mm. A not grapple with the fact that you cannot build an institution of slavery over hundreds of years, build a, right. a, an, an institution of separation right. over hundreds of years and dismantle it in a generation. Correct. You can't... You, and I find like this is a larger theme that I come back to again and again and again, mm-hmm. is that whenever America, Americans attack social ills, they have this perspective <laughs> that says, if we can't do it in a generation, we can't do it. Yes. And we call people failures because they don't turn around things overnight. And you, know, you spend 300 years impoverishing black families, mm-hmm. and then you spend 10 years trying to change things, and then you say, uh, I don't think it's just, this one's too hard. It's all their fault. Let's walk yeah. away. It's like, are you kidding me? Like, where did this idea come from? Who, who set this t- the ridiculous timetable? And I think that's at the core of the problem with Brown. In fact, in the second Brown decision, there were two Brown decisions. There's like a, a revised Brown decision, which came years later, which said to, in, to integrate with all deliberate speed. So it actually yeah. used that term in the second part of that decision. Which, of course, what does that mean with all deliberate speed? Exactly. What does that mean? And people didn't know. They didn't have, you know, the tools. But it's... Uh, the amount of the amount of euphemism in the way Americans talk about race yeah. is the single most striking thing to an out, mm. I'm an outsider, right? Obviously a Canadian, but I just can't get over how much how many times we, Americans have used these phrases that mean a fraction of what they're intended to mean when they talk about race. Do you think people are softening the blow or what do you think? No, they're just refusing to own up to mm-hmm. the problem. You know, mm-hmm. like in that Brown case, I I quote from this letter written to uh, a black teacher who got fired after the... Yeah, it was a brilliant and letter. And it's just one euphemism after another, right? Mm-hmm. It's all about how, oh, you'll be fine. It's going to be a little period of adjustment. It's like, to me, that's that's one of the most offensive things So condescending, about, yeah. It, yes, is, is the condescension. Yes, it's uh, doing your best to make sure people can't succeed and then blaming them for it after the fact. Yeah, which yeah. is always amazing. No, that's exactly And right. p- please listen to that out there. I don't want to give away too much. There's so much in there that is, that things that I didn't really consider, you know, especially in terms of who gets the blame for certain things and the fallout implications of those type of actions. And when you talk about euphemisms, Malcolm, and how people want to talk about certain things, mm-hmm. the foot soldier of Birmingham is a breathtaking example of that. And mm-hmm. uh, that is, I didn't know about this actually. This is the statue in Birmingham where one of the most famous pictures from the civil rights era splashed across the country at that time of a a young man. It was hard to tell how old he was actually from the picture, but he looked like a teenager or something. From the picture, it supported the notion that dogs were being put onto black people to to keep them back and all that sort of thing. Some of the images, Mm -hmm. by the way, that were seen already in TV news and that sort of thing, but this image was a very stark still life example of that and kind of supported mm-hmm. the, the cause it was going at the time, but you found it problematic. But I like that it's problematic. Yes. In other words... Not problematic. Um, it's problematic in an interesting way. In an interesting way. And I like the fact that... Because my, my 
agenda here is I want people to understand that history as they believe it is nine times out of 10 bullshit. (laughs) You're getting getting peddled a story by the winner. Mm -hmm. And the sooner you own up to that fact and recognize that fact, the better off you're going to be. Right. Right. Put aside your acceptance, your easy acceptance of Mm -hmm. historical truths and put on your skeptic's hat and ask, who is this story benefiting and why? Mm. Um, And the reason I liked, I wanted to retell the story of that photograph is that photograph is one of the first great public relations victories of the civil rights movement. It's, really? It is a fantastic victory. It's Martin Luther King. It's exactly what he want, wanted. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's a lot, uh, if you peer below the surface, you realize it's a trick. Yeah. I mean, they, not a trick, maybe that's too harsh a word, but it's not what it stacked up to be. It was, yes. in other words, it was African-Americans playing the same game that had been played against them for generations. Mm-hmm. And I find that fantastic. It's like, mm-hmm. um, I had more of this in my book, David and Goliath, but the genius of the civil rights movement of King and in, in particular, some of King's advisors was that they understood what, that they were playing a PR game. Yes. They didn't have the Completely. resources to go head to head against the white establishment. They could only win if they, if they played their cards very, very cleverly. That's and right. that picture is them playing their cards very, very cleverly, right? Mm-hmm. Like, it's like- uh, you know, the, there's a hilarious story about how when Bull Connor first brought out the dogs, um, they're, you know, the King's people are in 16th Street Baptist Church and they're looking out on, on Kelly Ingram Park yeah. and they see that Connor, they've been baiting Connor for months. Mm-hmm. And finally, Connor takes the bait and brings out the dogs and they start jumping up and down and laughing, all of King's people. They're like, we've won. Mm-hmm. This dude, he's, done, he's given us what we wanted, which was an image of this imbecilic redneck sicking dogs on black people, right? right? And it's you have to understand these guys are way more subtle, way more complicated and strategically than than we I sometimes think that they were or believe them to be. Yes. And that's what that their use of that photo is all about that. It's there's so much into what you just said. I mean, no one has presented an accurate historical view on that, of the genius behind the PR aspect of it, and not just we're these uh, angelic victims, and this is the account of of that victimhood, you know, yeah, that, uh, yeah. and even as horrible as that picture is, and, and the statue is a whole different uh, issue on that. Malcolm, it still doesn't spell out how horrible things actually were. So even if, yeah. if someone... Yeah says that they have sinned there, it's still not as bad as the sin that is being committed upon them of why they're doing that in the first place. There's so much layering in that, you know. And by the way, the thing, thing that I didn't get into in the piece, which I thought about a lot is, yeah. so this photograph that was taken of a German shepherd biting mm-hmm. a black kid yes. is this pivotal moment in the civil rights movement. And mm-hmm. it's what really sway, finally sways many white Northerners to throw their weight behind the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Mm -hmm. The greatest irony of all, of course, is that of all the things that were done to Black people in the South over the previous 300 years, a boy getting bitten by a German shepherd is about one millionth down the list. It's just about (laughs) the most trivial thing. I mean, people were getting lynched. They were getting railroaded. I mean, they were getting denied opportunity on every level. But what is it that finally turns white Northern opinion around? Yeah. A kid getting bit by a dog. I mean, it's just so offensive on some level. Yeah. But that's what it took. That's how kind of shallow Northerners' appreciation of what was going on in the South was, right? It boggles the mind. You know, a hundred years of lynching didn't change their mind. Well, the what's... institution of Jim Crow didn't change their mind. The systematic disenfranchisement of African American voters didn't change their mind. Yeah. But a dog lunging at a boy did. Yeah. When any behavior is institutionalized, it's very hard to see that behavior, you know, yeah. which is which is another problematic version of history. I was talking about this about 4th of July the other week where it's it's easy to look back at people and call them like, Thomas Jefferson was a slave master and these types of things, you know, and blame white people for certain type of behavior, but then they forget that the abolitionist movement is a white movement. Of course the slaves were abolitionists, you know. Yeah. <laughs> there were, you know... This is a, a complicated history, not an easy history when we talk about these things. And when you take things out of the historical context, it, it takes on a different meaning. But I believe that people were ready to see something as 
as well as that was the right thing to see. Like, it's weird how those things happen, you know? Yeah, um, no, I think that's right. Yeah, that maybe that was a, yeah. the culminating. I, yeah. That was the straw that broke the camel's back. And, and it, because of all those lynchings and because of all those things, it becomes, to use one of your terms, you know, the uh, tipping point of, like, it can't be, it can't be ignored anymore, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's yeah. funny, the artist, I think, Ronald S. McDowell, I believe is his name, mm-hmm. it's fascinating to listen to him uh, speak. And I think you, you were interviewing him. Was it you? Or was I loved it? him so much. I loved him so much. How long I did you talk was, to him? Oh, my God. I spent like the better part of a day with him. Ugh, we just had great. so much fun. He, he's just a great character. And then he has yes. all, I left out, I mean, hours of hilarious. Oh, he man. was basically, him and Michael Jackson were like these good buddies. Uh-huh. He was Michael Jackson's art teacher. I mean, it's just like, it's just weird. It's just like the guys had the strangest, yeah. most hilarious life. Right. But it's one of the pleasures of doing that kind of show is running across people like that. <laughs> yes. And, but what's fascinating is that the statue is the representation now more than the picture is in some ways. I guess you could argue yeah. that, you know, because certainly that's going to last longer. Um, mm-hmm. And the feeling that you get from that is different than the feeling that you get from that picture if you really look at them. But when you hear him talk, his agenda was not to present history. It was to it was in artist interpretation. So exactly. you have an artist giving us history. Yes. And his artistic representation of what happened is truer to the way things actually uh, That's what's happened. interesting. I know that's what's so great about people. And, Please listen to And the actual one. picture. Yes. Right? It took an artist. The real life shot doesn't actually capture what happened. No. Ronald McDowell's version... 30 years later does. Yes. He was talking about that's that was symbolic of what yes. was going on in Birmingham. Yes. Not not just that day and that moment. Yes. Um, the the dog's teeth alone tell you more about how the people of Birmingham felt than anything in the other picture does about the yeah. the psyche of that struggle. True. It's fascinating to me. But you're right, but talking to him is interesting cuz he's a character in and of himself, you know, and what yeah. he thinks about that uh that notion and everything. I yeah I had I had so much fun on that uh oh man on that and then talking to all of the character the all the kind of um aging white people in Birmingham about what happened that day as well was a trip yeah it's interesting to hear from the policemen too you know yeah Um, it's fascinating and you have to realize once again people are people not everybody is who you think they are Mm -hmm. um I love how I won't talk about this other one because I I don't. I know we're running out of time here, but but you you ask us to don't take sides in another podcast. Is that ever possible with history? Is it possible to not take sides with history? Uh, yeah, I think it's possible. Mm-hmm. Did you pick a side in the Iran Iraq War? <laughs> uh, uh, well, I may have slightly picked a side of that. <laughs> I mean, I I think I think it is possible. I mean, some battles are really yeah they're complicated. I mean, you can't, sure. and I think it's. More what I was saying that in that in that show that episode was you can take sides ultimately, but for the moment don't take sides yes. because it will right. impair your ability to understand what's going on here. Yeah. And that I think asking people to momentarily suspend judgment mm-hmm. is a very very useful thing. I think so too. Um, yeah, just like take it in before you jump. One and I think if one had to sum up very quickly what's gone wrong with our our kind of intellectual culture in this in this country, it's that people they won't suspend judgment. I mean, there's nothing wrong with judging, but just they won't they won't wait the thirty seconds or the two minutes to hear the other side before they jump in, and that's mm-hmm. that's tragic. I think because of that, and because we live in an age where, to me, it seems like there's an assault on the truth, and you know, there's this plea for us not to believe our lying eyes all the time. So I'll ask you, um, who gets to write our current history? Oh God, it's so much of it. Yeah. It's it's like. This is like, you know, I, would, I worked for the Washington Post in the 90s, mm-hmm. late 80s, early 90s. So I have a kind of news person sense of yeah. what a slow or a fast news day is. Mm-hmm. There's like five times more news today <laughs> than there was when I was a journalist. There just I wasn't know. this much news. I know. Like, go back and look at the front page of the Washington Post in, you know, August 1st, 1990. Yeah. Nothing happened. Yeah. Today, it's like every single day there's some new bombshell. I, I yeah. So how do you write history of this time? I mean, I'm not, yeah. if Robert Carroll were to write the history of, of our period, he'd need to live another 100 years. Yeah. 
you know, it need 10 volumes. Yeah. And what are we to believe from this? Like there are so many different versions of even what happens every day. I mean, there are literally at yeah. least four or five versions of what happens in a day. Versions. Yeah. No, no, no. Yeah. Like Donald Trump Jr. is on his, he's on his like 17th version of <laughs> yes. what exactly he did with that Russian guy. Yes. Every time he opens his mouth, he's got a new account. It's got a new version. <laughs> I know. And we're supposed to believe that version, you know. Do you remember years ago, there was a Woody Allen routine back when Woody Allen was doing a lot of stand-up. Mm-hmm. It's a famous routine where he's doing a, a kid has been kidnapped uh-huh. and he's playing the FBI negotiator. Yes, yes, yes. And they go through all the versions of the negotiation, back and forth, back and forth. Right. And finally, the negotiator, FBI negotiator says, you know, okay, here's my last offer. Keep the kid. <laughs> and I sort of feel like that's where we're at now. There's so many versions of the last, the last version actively yeah. kind of cannibalizes the intent of the conversation. Yes. I think that is the name of your next book, Keep the Kid. Keep uh, the kid. Um, thank you so much for joining me. Um, I could talk to you for, of course, hours. You know, I'm a huge fan and I love you so much. And uh, stay in there. And please, uh, your your take on the world we really need right now. And I can speak for everybody out there. We really appreciate. And everybody, please listen to Revisionist History. By the way, your podcast, you can do multiple listenings of it, which is very interesting because it's so dense. Many of them are so dense. You want to go back and listen to it again, you know, and go, did I hear that correctly? Or that sort of thing. So congratulations. Oh, thank you, yes. Thank you so much. Thank you, my friend. Malcolm Gladwell, everybody. Revisionist History. Listen. Listen.